But as we get into the conclusion of James, I want to be able to communicate. I, I am reading James in a way that I never have before. And again, we take, we take what people say about different books of the Bible, their, their life experiences, what a commentator may say. James is known for being harsh. James is known for being, you know, just a, a straight shooter, doesn't hold the punches, just, you know, comes out of the gate kind of swinging at some of our behaviors. Um, so when you hear those kinds of things, that becomes a filter as you read the text. And I, I confess to you, that's been a filter as I've read James historically. And there is, you know, there's, there's some truth to that. But there, the, this whole idea of when you sit down and you just read the Bible, you can just read it and, you, you know, you can pick up a little nugget here or there depending on where you are that day and just how the Lord is speaking to you. But the difference between just reading and, like, really getting in and wrestling with the text, I've studied James before, I've studied it in a small group context before, but this is the first time where I've really personally just wrestled with the text. What is he saying why is he saying it? What's, what's influencing what's he, what he's saying? What is he attempting to communicate to us? And ultimately, as we finish it today, the heart of James at the very end, his heart is for not only himself, for the men and women that he served, for the men and women that he wrote this letter to, and that what the Lord has preserved this document for us for all these generations, for every single one of us to keep turning back to Jesus because we all wander we all drift we all sit in deception here and there and James's James's exhortation at the very end is this encouragement of what the reality is is when you and when I and when we uh, seek to influence the lives of others for their relationship with Jesus what what a blessing it is but this idea of James you sit in who he is. So sit, this is Mother's Day, so let's just make this connection. When our Savior is on the cross, dying for our sins, what does he say to Mary? Mary, James is going to take care of you. Is that what he says? Is the elder son? He looks to John the Apostle. He's considered to be a, a cousin of Christ, so he's an extended family member. There's a family relationship there. But he looks at John, he says, John, Mary's your mom. Take care of her as the eldest son would take care of mom. Mary, John is now your eldest son. What does that say about James as Jesus is dying on the cross? Where is he? No faith, in doubt. But then what in the world happened to James? You fast forward into the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit is sent. James had a radical conversion. He was raised with Jesus as the elder brother. He is there witnessing the public ministry and questioning what's going on in Jesus' life, questioning his sanity and what he's saying and what he's doing and what he's teaching. After the cross, we are told that after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus comes to his younger brother and has a one-on-one -on -one conversation. 
And just like we have this Damascus Road experience with Paul, where Paul was radically transformed, he was a hater of Jesus, and he became a lover of Jesus in a moment. James had that same kind of conversion, that when you sit in Acts, James, the half-brother of Jesus, becomes the first leader of the body of Christ as, as Jesus' representative. He's that first elder. You sit in these experiences, Paul, Peter the apostle, Peter submits to James. I find it fascinating. Again, we sit in, we sit in Paul's conversion as a testimony to the reality that this man, our God, who became a man, who died for our sins on the cross, who was dead and buried, and who rose again from the dead. We use Paul's conversion as an evidence of the reality that Jesus really did rise from the dead, because how does a man go from hating and persecuting to becoming a follower and promoter to the degree that Paul did? It's, it's a testimony of the reality of the historic event of Jesus' resurrection. James's life can be held up in that exact same category. Something happened. What would it take for you to look at your brother as your savior? As the promised Messiah, something radical happened. His brother died on the cross. And he saw his brother after the resurrection. And he was transformed in that moment and on that day. And James... Again, history calls him James the Just, a prayerful man, a man who was in constant conversation with his God through his Savior, his brother. Again, so prayer is going to be a heavy topic today. So as we turn to these last verses of James, I'm not going to spend any time giving a, an overall outline you can sit in this document and just read through it and outline it well in about 20 minutes. I invite you to do that and really just sit and wrestle with these themes. But we're just going to press into his final exhortations here. He's just told us that the patience that he is encouraging each one of us, let that be in relationship, in relation to the, the hope of the return of Jesus Christ, that our King is coming he has promised to, that he ascended and that as he ascended that he was going to prepare a place for us to receive us into his presence for all eternity. He has promised to return and when he does return we have all these future predictions of what that's going to look like. But our Savior, our God, and our King is coming back and let that be a grounding, passionate determined, diligent idea, thoughts um, that, that motivates what you think and how you act and how you speak in this life. This is James's exhortation. Now, in chapter 5, verse 13, he asks this question, is anyone among you suffering? How easy is your life? I just, I just commented to you, like, I, I have a very good and blessed life. It's a life that's had a lot of challenges in it, for sure. Uh, a lot of my hardships have been self-inflicted, of course. Some of them have been sourced externally. 
But just in this question for you, and I know as, like, as we talk about moms and families, you all don't have my same life experience. Some, t- some of you, when I mention family, that's a painful word for you. It's not a praiseworthy word that it is for me. But is there anyone here right now, is anyone here suffering? And this could be you're suffering physically, you're suffering emotionally, you're suffering relationally, you're suffering spiritually. Is there a trial, this tribulation at the beginning of James? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Count it all joy when you fall into suffering. Is there anyone here suffering? What does James tell you? What does he command you to do? Let him, let her pray. His entire exhortation is talk to God. Listen to him. Follow him. Love him. Hope in him. Find joy in him. Find comfort in him. Is there anyone here suffering? Let him pray. Now, the reality is, is when we're suffering, what do we normally try to do ourselves? We try and get ourselves out of the suffering, right? Whatever that, whatever that thing is that's pricking at us, that's causing us pain, we want that removed. We want that fixed. We want that done away with. Again, this is the thing with prayer. Is prayer is running to God with your mouth and your heart and your mind. I'm confused. This hurts. I'm in pain. I don't understand. I need help. And again, James's exhortation at the very beginning, let patience have its perfect work. So when you, you feel like you lack something, you feel like you're in pain, you feel like you don't know, therefore, ask God. Have the conversation with God. And this is, this is what the... Um, I don't want to be uh, over-emphatic on this statement. I don't want to be over-emphatic in my own life in regards to it, or in your life, or in our culture. Um, but we're, we are a prayerless culture. We are, we are a maverick culture. We are a do-it-yourself. We are a, you know, you-can-do-anything-that-you-dream kind of nation. Whatever you dream, whatever work you want to put forth, you can be successful in, in the culture in which we live. You know, these are, these are ideas that we grow up with that are very firmly seated in our souls. So, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in God's word. Yes, I seek him in prayer and ask him for all kinds of petitions. Yes, I come to him in praise. I have a constant relationship with God. I am constantly talking to him. And I'm confessing to you, even in the midst of that, there are many times I feel like a prayerless man. The conversation that I need to have with my God is not happening. And it's this conflict on the inside. I'm not doing what I want to do. I want to talk to God. But then there's, there's confusion in prayer. What, what, what does prayer look like? They're all different kinds of forms. What am I supposed to say? Whatever's on your mind and your heart. How am I supposed to know what God's saying in response? Well, you definitely have to begin in his word. Many of you have a relationship with God where, like, he speaks to you in your mind, in your heart, and you hear his voice. There's this intimacy, and we're told that 
when you, when you have that kind of relationship with God, you have his word to go and verify the truth of those things. For me personally, it's usually not this um, really emotional experience as I am encountering God. It's usually a very, it's an emotional experience, but uh, it's 90% of the time when God is speaking to me, he's speaking to me out of his word. And his word is lining up to my mind and my heart and my context, what I'm asking him for. You know, this is how we hear his voice in response to us. Most of the time it's through his word. Yes, it's absolutely through his Holy Spirit. Yes, it's through our brothers and sisters. Yes, it can be through a billboard. It can be through a milk carton message, right? God can get our attention any way he wants to get our attention. But here's the exhortation from James. My brothers... And my sisters, I know that you are suffering in your life for all different reasons. I am commanding you to have a conversation with God. Now, all life is not, woe is me, Eeyore, cloudy days, darkness, and depression. His next question is what? Is anyone cheerful? I just, I just express to you, my heart is filled with gratitude and cheer for my mom, for my mother-in-law, for my wife, for my family, for our congregation, for my life. It's content in all, in all of its fullness and all of the undoneness that I see in myself and all the tasks that I have to accomplish. I could sit here and gripe and complain and woe is me and have this Eeyore attitude for any of you who even remember who Eeyore is. Um, I'm cheerful. And what are we supposed to do when we're cheerful? Go and have a different kind of conversation with God. Let him, let her, and it's one word in the Greek, sing psalms. And it's literally, it's, it's pluck a string. Get an instrument. I don't know, whatever, if it's Spotify, whatever you listen to. If you can sing yourself and stand the tone of your own voice, that's awesome. I can't. I need to have loud music to drown out my voice because I can't carry a tune, unfortunately. And this is my hope in heaven that I will be able to sing all eight notes in multiple octaves, right? But when I'm cheerful, I want to sing. I, I'm, I'm, a real, I, I'm also a white guy, and like my neck and spine and pelvic, everything's like stick straight. I can't move anything independently. I can't dance like David. And nor do I want to dance like David, because that's just not me. If you see me jumping around, dancing in a room, call a good Christian counselor for me, all right? Because <laughs> something's off in Blake, or he got into pills that he shouldn't have gotten into. But I am a cheerful man. And the cheer and joy that I have in my life, it really is a choice. Even at the beginning, as we started with James, I was, just, I was convicted with this idea. I am going to choose. I am going to make the choice to count my life joy. And it has, it has a radical impact on how I process through any given day. Because I haven't been successful in that in the couple of months that we've been in June. I've had my days where I'm just Mr. Grumpy Pants and I'm not counting at all joy. And I feel, I feel the difference spiritually, psychologically, physically, the circumstances I'm interacting with. If I'm choosing to mumble and grumble, 
I'm bumbling and grumbling. There, there's no cheer there. There's no, wor- there's no true worship and gratitude for God there. I love days like Mother's Day. Uh, I'm very rebellious into this kind of stuff when it's just cultural and I feel like it's American consumerism and all that. Like I rebel against all of that. But give me a day that I can just, just place pause and Blake, why don't you meditate on the women in your life? Why don't you meditate on who your mom really is and what it is that she's done for you? And not just for you, but for your sister for your father, for your children. That's a good thing to just pause and let myself be filled with cheer and gratitude for my mom, for my mother-in-law, for my wife. That's a good thing. If you're not cheerful, there's a reason. And again, there's, there's circumstances. Are you suffering? Let's have a conversation with God. Are you cheerful? Let's have a different conversation with God. We are going to get into the Old Testament. Uh, So in a couple of weeks, we're going to have an Old Testament overview and how Samuel fits into the major narrative of the Old Testament. The second week that we're in that study, we are going to go and sing Psalm 1 and 2. Now, we're going to read it, but we're going to let it sing in our mind and our heart. there's, There's all of these incredible psalms Words that are to be put to music. Music helps guide our emotions. Music helps memorize. You ought to have your favorite worship songs. I hope you do. There are songs that we sing. You think uh, John Bunyan knew that we'd be singing Amazing Grace? I mean, what are you, 200, 300 years ago that he wrote that? And all its different variations. And it's still ringing true in our hearts today. There are songs, there are modern worship songs that carry over multiple decades and continue to ring true in the church. There's some worship songs that's a flash in the fire pan. It's it's popular for a minute. It's popular for a year and it just fades into the background. It doesn't matter how new it is. It doesn't matter how long it's been around. It doesn't matter what style it is. You and your personality, when you're cheerful, let your soul sing to God. And again, this isn't a suggestion. This is, this is James, Elder James, first leader of, the, of his brother's church, giving us a command. If you're cheerful, sing. Let your soul sing. Is anyone among you sick? Now this is a, we can sit in this word in... A couple of different ways. One is definitely if you are physically sick, the word means to be weak or to be feeble. Um, Let's keep reading this verse. It says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick. The second word for sick there means somebody who is worn out, exhausted, the circumstances of life. So it's, it's not just talking about people who have a physical disease. It's also talking about those who are just mentally and spiritually and physically exhausted and worn out with life. You ever been there? You know souls like that? And here's the, here's the emphasis. Is there anyone among you sick? And this is beyond the flu, the cold. 
corona, COVID could be pretty bad. Cancer. Again, my wife is a type 1 diabetic. She is sick every day. Her body is broken and it has its different repercussions. And God gives her miracles every single day to sustain her and her mind and her body and her spirits. And I watch God give her strength every day. He performs a healing in her every day. And I thank him for it and I recognize it. But is there anyone among you sick? What's the command? You humble yourself and reach out. And here it's to the elders, to those. I want to do this in the church because I want you to see. And we're going to start with the men first and get ready to stand. Men, if you are a teacher of the word of God, God has given you a passion for his word. God has called you to himself in his word. God has given you a passion to make his word known to anyone that he'll let you, I want you to stand. I don't care what context and I don't care what your age is. If this is you, I want you to stand. Peterson, stand up. These are the men that you call. These would be the elders of the church. These are men who God has saved from their sins. This is, these are men who cry out to God for salvation, for direction, for wisdom, for trust, for clarity. As I'm looking around at the different faces that are standing up in this room, there is not a single one of these men who I would not send you to them, that they would love you well biblically. Sit down. Women. Women. Same question. Stand up. Yeah, you better stand up, Lori. To the women of this congregation, same thing. Here are women who love their God and their Savior. Here are women who pursue our Lord together into, through his word, right? They want to faithfully handle his word, his counsel. They want nothing more than for you to be successful in your relationship for Jesus. You can sit down. These are the people that when you were sick, when you were exhausted, these are the ones that you pick up the phone and you call and you say, I need you. I'm in pain. I hurt. I have this disease. I am exhausted. I am worn out. I don't know what to do. I'm alone. I pray God for each and every one of you. This isn't just call for the guy who's called the pastor or the elder or the bishop or the deacon or somebody who has a title. This is call out for your brothers and sisters 
who you know love the Lord, love his word, and they will give you godly counsel to the best of their ability, whatever that looks like. Because they love him, you know that they love you, and you can trust them. They're not going to gossip. They're not going to slander. They're not going to seek your destruction. They want nothing greater than for you to know and to follow and to be madly in love with our God. So if you're sick, call for the elders and what? Let them pray over you. All of this is a conversation with the Almighty God. Anointing them with oil. So we sit in our, our culture is kind of weird. You know, everything's kind of like a little tip. It's, it's been reduced to, you know, having a little dab of oil, maybe putting a cross on your forehead, and this is, this is how we anoint. So you stand in James's culture. Oil is the medicine of the day. You go sit in Luke and the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the guy that got the snot beat out of him and that was left for dead on the side of the road. What did the Good Samaritan do for that man? Picked him up, took him to a hotel, and it says he anointed him with oil. His bruises, his cuts, his wounds, he was washed and he was anointed with oil. This, this was the medicine of the day. At the same time, oil is a consecrating activity. I've had an individual come to me before and get Old Testament on me and take a horn of olive oil and pour it up over my head. I, here I am. Let, let's have at it. I, I'll, I'll, I will receive that. No problem. But again, it's this whole idea of consecration. As we get back into the Old Testament, we'll watch Samuel do this to Saul. We'll watch Samuel do this to David. There, an anointing means to rub, to smear with oil. And the imagery that we have out of the Old Testament, oil is this image of the Holy Spirit. Um, so as we are anointing another today with oil, it, again, it's... it's it is a symbolic act, just like communion is a symbolic act of Jesus' body and blood. Oil is, a, is to symbolically represent that anointing, that coming upon of the Holy Spirit. So when somebody is sick and when somebody is exhausted, as we pray over them and anoint somebody with oil, it's asking God to come upon them, to be the lifter of their head, of their soul, of their body, to heal according to the Lord's will. And again, this is do it in the name of Jesus. This isn't the power of the person. This is we are submitting you to the power of God as you cry out, not to me for help and not to the person that you called for help. Ultimately, you're calling people to surround you with the influence of the Lord, that the Lord would just be sovereign and dominate your life in every single way as you're crying out because you were sick and exhausted. Do y'all feel this? So it's, it's a beautiful encouragement. And then we have this promise in verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So here, this prayer of faith in the very beginning, James says, when you ask God, do not ask God your petitions with doubting. 
And that word for doubting, it means uh, hesitation. It has the idea, it's, it's a compound word, but in that word it has the idea of judgment, that you are coming to God in your opinions, in your understanding, with things already worked out, and you're hesitating to go have a conversation with God because you don't think God's going to act. You don't think that you deserve God to act in your life. You know, you're coming to him with doubting and excuses and all your other baggage. That is the exact opposite of the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith runs boldly, courageously to the throne of God's grace. And again, the constant prayer is, may you know who the Almighty God is. And we're going to end today in a snapshot out of the Old Testament where God reveals his heart to you and what he wants you to do in pursuit of him. So we'll get there in a minute. So the prayer of faith is the opposite of the prayer of doubt, but it will save the sick. Again, it will save the worn out. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, very popular in James's time. It's even popular in our culture. Just had a conversation with somebody this morning um, in a specific circumstance that the whole idea is, here, here's, a, here's, a, here's a gal who's gone into preterm labor. Her mom said to her own daughter that's going into preterm later, what did you do? In other words, how did you sin that God is punishing you and your child? How does that make you feel? Righteous anger, right? But think about it. In John chapter 9, young man born blind. Disciples come to Jesus. Jesus, who sinned? Did the boy sin that he was born blind? Or did his parents sin and God made the boy born blind? Jesus, neither. He's born blind to reveal the glory of God. And that man was given his sight and his vision as a testimony to the reality in who Jesus Christ was. You also have multiple times um, the man at the pool of Bethesda. So when Jesus heals that man at the pool and he takes up his mat and he walks and he comes back and finds Jesus and thanks him, Jesus tells that man to go and sin no more, which leads us to think that his physical sickness, his physical weakness was the result of sin in his life. So there's no broad brush. And here James is covering this idea there is the reality and there is truth that there is mental sickness physical sickness spiritual sickness in the body of christ that is the result of sin is it always that way absolutely not but here again the exhortation is if he has committed sins he'll be forgiven why who are you crying out to who's the sick person crying out to they're seeking god for forgiveness for cleansing for healing in that shame, in that guilt, God, cleanse me and purge me and change me. Fix my consequences that I've put myself into. And again, the prayer of faith. Save the sick. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Getting back into one of the overarching themes in James, it seems to be these divisions in the body of Christ. And here's this uh, confession. So when you sit in there earlier where the rich may have defrauded the poor, 
for the rich man to go and confess his sins to the poor man and for there to be a reconciliation and restoration. For the poor man that we've seen in the example in James where he is maligning the rich man and slandering and cursing his name and all this other kind of language for that man to go and to be reconciled with his brother in Jesus Christ. Confess your sins, your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Again, the relationship that we have with each other. There are times for public confession. If I commit a public sin in the position that I have within our body and I am wrong and I am an heir and this is, this is a public thing, it's of public nature, there is, a, there is a responsibility on me to come before you and to confess what I did wrong. This is what I did. God's word says not to do that. I'm confessing that I sinned here. Here's the consequences of that. I'm asking for you to forgive me. A public confession. But the confession of sins to one another, the reality is, is 99% of the time, it's, it's a one-on-one conversation between the two parties involved. Or maybe there's a few people involved in the conversation. Maybe you need an outside arbitrator, somebody to come help mediate that conversation. But the pursuit is confession in your relationship with God, always. And then when you're off with your brothers and sisters, confess your trespasses to one another. Humble yourself. Be restored. Be reconciled. Be filled with gentleness and, and love and mercy and the wisdom that he grants to you in the midst of what that relationship is causing suffering. God, how are we going to fix this? What needs to change in my heart? What are the words that I need to go and speak to this person? I'm right, they're wrong, but how do I need to make them feel like they're right? Scratch that last comment. Get in trouble that way. Listen to this. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The word effective, fervent is, or the words, is one word in the Greek. It literally means the working, the active, the operative prayer of a righteous man. This does not mean that you are righteous in your own works, in your own self. This is a soul who has been saved through faith in Jesus Christ that is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, the prayer of that man, that woman, it avails much. It is able. It, is, it has strength. It performs much. And then he gives us this example of Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he is ju- he, Elijah was just like you and me. No different. Human being. And everything that means, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly, literally. He prayed a verb, prayers, the noun. He prayed prayers that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. If you remember from last week, earlier on, James gives this, uh, the... The illustration that he gives to demonstrate patience. 
He used a farmer that is waiting for the precious fruit of the earth, that he's waiting for the early and for the latter rains and for the crop to yield its fruit. So now he's turning back to this Old Testament picture. Can you imagine no rain in Atlanta for three and a half years? What kind of suffering would be in our community? That would be absolutely miserable, and it would be absolutely tragic. We would constantly be surrounded by death of the old and the young. We would witness constant malnourishment. The reason why Elijah prayed this prayer was because God told him to. So you can go read the scenes in 1 Kings 17, 18, 19, Elijah's story. Ahab was a wicked king. And God used a drought to try and get the attention of a wicked man leading a culture further into wickedness. And his wicked wife, Jezebel. And Ahab blamed Elijah for all the suffering that was going on rather than humbling himself and repenting and looking to God as the only one who controls the rain. God withheld a necessary provision as a judgment. And here again, this is, this is the picture of he prayed this effective and powerful, working, operative prayer through the power of God in line with God's will. And exactly what was prayed is exactly what occurred. And when the time was right, he prayed for the rain to return. And that, that whole incredible scene. This, I love this building when it rains in here. Because again, the, the rain is always a picture for me of God's provision. It's a picture of the Holy Spirit. In, in the Old Testament, you have a rivers in the Garden of Eden. And in Revelation, at the very end, you have this river that's proceeding from the throne of God, representing the Holy Spirit. A couple of weeks, when we're going to be in Psalm 1, a tree planted next to a river of water. The river of water of life. Water is incredible. We need it. And here, Elijah being used as the, as the example. Here's the prayers that he prayed. And God listened. God directed. God acted according to his will, whether it was in judgment or whether it was in um, release of that judgment, withholding further judgment. All of it to direct our attention to him. Oh, man, we got to pick up the pace. Here's his heart. Verse 19. Brethren, my brothers and sisters, if anyone... Listen, this is, this is church people. He's talking to people who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. I believe in him. I believe his words. I have a relationship with him. Brothers and sisters, if anyone among y'all wanders... You've been led astray through something deceptive, whether it's the enemy, whether it's the world, whether it's your own heart. If anyone among you wanders from the truth, who is truth? If anyone of you wanders from Jesus and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error, and again, this is the exact same word as wander, from the deceit, from the 
from the being led astray, you're, you're off, you've drifted, you've wandered away from the error of his way, will save a soul, a psyche. We're not talking about the physical body, talking about the, the, the man, the woman that God has made you on the inside that is eternal. Save a soul from death and cover a multitude, a plurality of sin. This is James's entire exhortation through this letter. This is the example that he has been through this letter. He is seeking to stand in the gap of people's lives, that he has seen a wandering away from the truth, a wandering away from following the way of Jesus Christ. And he is standing in that gap, seeking to turn, and look at, look at this, turning sinners. Wait a minute. I'm saved. I have faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not a sinner anymore. Is that true? He's talking to the church. And yes, we need to be cautious. You are a child of God. You've been born again from above. You have faith in Jesus Christ. You are no longer identified as a child of wrath, a child of sin, a child of disobedience. You are a child of God. You have been adopted. You have been transformed, renewed, regenerated. You are no longer a sinner. So stop sinning, right? This is the struggle that we all process through every single day. But the reality is, is when our heart, when the world, when the devil is leading us astray, what are we doing? What have we become? We've, we've, we've been talking a lot about abiding this week in the different men's groups. It's, I'm stepping out from the house of peace. I'm stepping out from the house of God. I'm stepping out from his presence to go and do my own thing. I'm now, I'm now you know, I've got this other label on me. And again, the, the heart to turn back. And again, this is, this is a position that you've already been in that you've left, and the exhortation is that you are helping somebody turn back to where they belong, turn back to their relationship with God, turn back to what is true. That, when you stand in that gap for your brothers and sisters, for even the unsaved as you're sharing the gospel, does this not flood you with joy to be this kind of help for another human being? This is how I want to be used. God, I don't, I don't need anybody to remember my name. I don't need anybody to remember me. I want every human being that you enable me to interact with, all I want them to do is to love you and to remain with you all the days of their lives. Because I know that they struggle with that because I struggle with that, Lord. And it's that, it's that old song, Lord, my heart is prone to wander. I feel it. Why would I ever leave the God I love? Blake, you're an insane man. I don't want to. I have this constant call in my relationships with you. As you share about Jesus in your life with me, you are constantly turning me back to the Lord. Oh, yeah. Nothing's better than Jesus. Now, in five minutes, turn, turn to Ezekiel 18. This is where we're ending. I encourage you to read this whole chapter. It's beginning with a, an idea of what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are on edge in the beginning. And the whole idea is 
it is my dad's fault. It is my grandfather's fault that my life sucks. That's what the proverb is. My grandpa sinned, so God is punishing me for my dad's sin and my grandpa's sin. You know, this idea of generational curses. Yes, there are consequences of sin in our life and how that impacts households and generations. Yes, that stuff is very real. But who frees us from any of that? Jesus Christ, period, always. Now, jump down to, we're going to read. We're just going to read this because I don't have time to comment on it. But what I want you to pay attention to is that you are listening to the God who created the heavens and the earth express and reveal his heart for every single human being and this is the language that is motivating james and this whole idea of turn back so ezekiel 18 starting in verse 19 yet you say why should the son not bear the guilt of the father because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them he shall surely live yeah, God's law, God's command for you is to believe in his son. Verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him. Look at the grace of God and the mercy of God. All of this through his son. Because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Listen to God's heart. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live. But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed. Because of them, he shall die yet you say the way of the lord is not fair here now o house of israel is it not my way which is fair and your ways which are not fair when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness commits iniquity and dies in it it is because of the iniquity which he has done that he dies again when a wicked man turns away from the wickedness which he has committed and does what is lawful and right, he preserves himself alive. Because he considers and turns away from all the transgressions which he committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, it is not my ways which are not fair. And your, is it not my ways which are fair, and your ways which are not fair? Therefore, I will judge you. O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all of your transgressions so that your iniquity will not be your ruin. 
Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed. Look at this. And get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Is that not the cry of your heart? Oh Lord, give me that new heart that you've promised. Renew in me, restore in me a new spirit, Lord. Made in your image. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Worship team, come on up. I want you to, I want you to remember these words. Remember the nature and the character of God as he reveals himself to you. God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. His, his yearning cry to his creation that he made in his image, turn and live. So Heavenly Father, we do that and respond to you in obedience today. We are absolutely madly in love with you, Lord. It is such a joy and a privilege and an honor to know you. Lord, I look at the, the first 20 plus years of my life where I really didn't know and I was wandering in my own ways, where sin was growing, Lord. I was testing all these things out and nothing satisfied. I knew I was broken. I knew I was dark. You set a bride to me and her family with the words to turn and live in their mouths. And oh, did I hear. And I hear those same words today, Lord. You are constantly directing me to turn from this world, to turn from the bait of the devil, to turn from the desires of my own heart and to offer myself, all of myself to you. I do that again today, Lord, as a living sacrifice. Here I am. Here's my mind. Here's my heart. I want to give you thanks, Lord, for already giving to each one of us through faith in Christ a new heart and a new spirit. You have caused us to be born again of the spirit, born again from above, and I give you thanks. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning, may they, may they hear you and see you and know and understand that if they cry out to you for life and forgiveness, that it is theirs today and for all eternity. For those of us who already have, Lord, keep us from wandering, from drifting. We all feel this pull away and we look at ourselves in the mirror and our own insanity and just, Lord, I don't get it. We're yearning for that day patiently for you to return, Lord, to, to fully do away with sin in our life and in this world to finally, Lord, bear that image of our glorious God for all eternity. Let that hope purify us. In our lives, Lord, bring yourself great glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray.